Well, as I mentioned earlier, I was at the annual meeting this week, which gave me an excuse to have another voice come and share the word with you this evening. And we have a real treat this evening. Uh, we have Stacy Gleddysmith with us. And uh, Stacy and her husband, Andrew, right there, uh, were fellow students of mine at Regent College when I was there. Stacy graduated a year before me. And you may not think you've heard her name, but if you've ever done the Advent devotionals uh, that we've done many times, the, the Regent Reader, she was the editor on that. And if you've been to our Good Friday service, a good portion of that liturgy is taken from one of her blogs, so <laughs> she's influenced us more than you know already, and tonight she is going to come and share the word out of 1 Corinthians 14, so would you please welcome her? All right. Well, I'm delighted to be with you today. Um, Andrew's been occasionally coming cross an international border for coffee dates with Chris, so um, it's great that I can uh, finally come down and see you. Um, thank you to the team up here. In a way, my sermon title is Worship, Keeping the Main Thing the Main Thing. In a way, I feel like I could just sit down <laughs> and we'd be done today, but, you know, I worked so hard, so you have to sit there and listen to it. <laughs> um, I'm currently the uh, director of the Worship Arts Program at Columbia Bible College in Abbotsford, just across the border. So um, it's my privilege to bring greeting, greetings to you from them as well. Um, we view our local churches very much as partners in the gospel, and we um, are so grateful for the work that you do. Um, we try to train students not only in church music, but also in pastoral leadership, in uh, interpretation and use of other art forms, as well as um, we try to give them a really solid foundation for worship. So you were actually supposed to hear from Andrew <laughs> this morning, um, but I got substituted in because I've done some work in this passage previously. So Chris asked Andrew to preach, and, and uh, Andrew said, are you sure you don't, don't want Stacy to just preach this because she's looked at this passage before, so here I am. We are married, but we uh, just discovered that both of us forgot to wear our wedding rings today. <laughs> so just in case anyone notices that, I thought I should clarify. He took his off for work and forgot, and I took mine off because I was teaching a pottery workshop. And so these things happen. First <laughs> um, Corinthians 14, verse 40, uh, verse 26 to 40 is an interesting text. Last week, you will have heard from Chris about one more issue in the church at Corinth. Um, it's a little bit refreshing sometimes, isn't it, to hear passages from Scripture where people just keep getting it wrong? <laughs> it makes us feel a little bit better about where we're at in our walk with Christ. Um, but still, the Corinthians are counted as saints. So no matter how much Paul continues to admonish them and to to call them toward Christ more strongly. Um, still, he calls them saints and children of God, and um, that's important for us to keep in mind. So the gift of tongues given by God for the purpose of drawing near to God for the Corinthians actually has become at this point a barrier to them because there's no interpretation. So everyone's speaking, no one's listening. And so the word of God is not heard, and the word of God is not received. The word of God is not responded to, um, because everyone's speaking, 
<laughs> and so then it becomes a bit like just speaking for the sake of hearing your own voice. And Paul says to them even in verse 17 of chapter 14, you are giving thanks well enough, but others are not edified. And so because of this, the mission of the church at Corinth, the witness of the church is also compromised as we read in verses 22 through 25. So in our text today, Paul continues this theme and he deepens it. Um, and I would like to read that text with you now. Um, if you are able, one more time, would you stand for the reading of the word? What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of, of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, I'm already up here, so I'm just going to finish reading, if that's okay. <laughs> or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So I made a little joke there, and that's all right. But uh, we do want to take um, the Word of God seriously. So what I'd like to do is begin by looking at those two verses, because for some of us, those two verses about women being silent are going to jump to the forward um, or to the front. And if we don't actually address them, uh, it's going to distract from the actual message that Paul is delivering to the Corinthians in this passage. So I'm not going to spend a long time on that, um, but I do want to just talk about the way um, we approach those verses interpretively. <laughs> the, these two verses are actually some of the most contested verses in scriptures among theologians. And it's not because of the issue of whether or not women should preach in church. It's because Paul, in chapter 11, has just clearly laid out some instructions for women to prophesy in church. And now, in chapter 14, he seems to be directly contradicting his instructions in chapter 11. And so, both sides 
uh, extremely conservative uh, con um, theologians, extremely liberal theologians, if we want to use those very divisive words, um, all of them have trouble with this text because we're not entirely sure uh, what the situation was in Corinthians in regards to those two verses. So he's laid out some good rules for women praying and prophesying in the gathered community. Why this injunction to silence? There's two primary ways that theologians approach this. The first is to view um, the passage as addressing a very specific situation in the church of Corinth. And therefore, that ver those two verses are not to be kind of extrapolated outward. Um, so can commentators note that the word translated as speak in verse 34, so they are to, to remain silent, they are not to speak. That is uh, a word, a Greek word for um, an informal type of speech. So Paul intentionally uses other words like prophesy and pray, as we see in Corinthians 11, when he talks about public speech speech in the gathered community. And so this choice of a different word, commentators say, is, is an indication that it's a more casual conversation that's happening, that Paul is instruct, instructing the Corinthians that needs to stop. And so from there, um, several different commentaries kind of go in different directions, and they try to kind of guess what that situation might be. But it's at best guesswork. So one commentary says, oh, women might have been less educated than their husbands, and so they would have been sitting over there, and so they're yelling across at their husband. What does that mean? I don't understand it. So that is one possibility. Or there's a group of disruptive women who are trying to shout down the prophecies of men in order to um, give themselves more power in a situation. I read in one commentary. Or there's simply chatter happening. And I think we can't really know for sure what the situation was. Um, but what we do see in this text is that we've got a number of distracting things happening. There's people speaking in tongues all at once. There's people prophesying and speaking all at the same time. And so it does kind of make sense that there would be a third example where there's just, it happens to be a group of women and they're chattering away in the corner because no one else is listening anyway, so what does it matter? So that's one, one possibility there. But as I said, it's mostly guesswork when it comes to the very specific situation. What we do know is that that word for speak is an informal. The second approach to these verses is a little more complex. So it involves the fact that there are some early manuscripts that we have that, in which those two verses, um, verse 34 and 35, actually are placed at the end of the chapter instead of right in the location where they were when I read them um, just now. On one particular manuscript, there's a scribe that made a note in the margin that indicates the verses may be in addition to the letter instead of in the original um, and so some theologians will say, we should just leave those two verses out altogether. They're not a part of Paul's original words. We're just going to leave them out. The problem with that view is we do have those two verses in every single manuscript. Whether they're placed in the middle as we read them today or whether they're at the end, um, they are there. And so I find it difficult to just dismiss them out of hand um, as some theologians do. What I find compelling or interesting about uh, these early manuscripts is when you read the text, 
with those two verses at the end, there's something really interesting that happens in reading verses 33 and 36 together that really highlights and underscores the point Paul's making. So in verse 33, he says, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And then 36 says, or did the word of God originate with you? Right? Those, those two lines, kind of, they line up really well together, and I think that's an interesting reading of this text. So in my own view, I would kind of skate between the two a little bit. As I said, I don't think we can just dismiss and take those verses out. Some theologians go that way. Um, but I do find the reading of 33 next to 36 very compelling in the context of 1 Corinthians and in the context of this chapter in particular. Um, So I think there is something to that. Uh, But I think also there are situations at play that we simply can't know about, and maybe new evidence will come to light um, in the future, but at this point in time, there's not enough information to let us know exactly what's going on with those texts. So I think we need to be a little bit comfortable with ambiguity there, and I'm happy to talk to anyone um, who wants to discuss that further later. Um, But for our purposes today, I'm going to take those two verses and leave them to the side, having said that I think they serve as another example of the disruption that we're seeing in the gathered community. Um, And I'm going to leave them to the side, not because I think they're unimportant or insignificant, or because I find them problematic, because I'm a woman who speaks uh, in churches, although sometimes I wish they weren't there. (laughs) But I want to take Scripture seriously. Uh, And I think if we focus just on those two verses, we're going to miss something in what Paul is saying here. And Paul's very point, as I have titled my sermon, is to keep the main thing the main thing. So that's what I want to do. Um, I was going to say this morning, but that was a long time ago. So this evening. (laughs) So what is the main thing? Paul is writing in his letter to a church that has lost the heart of his worship and has forgotten the main reason they gather. So he lays out for them very explicitly in this text the purpose of gathered worship. He says in verse 26 that the purpose of gathered worship of prophecy and tongues in community is to build up the church, right? To build up the congregation to make it stronger. The purpose of gathered worship of prophecy and tongues in community, Paul says then in verse 31, is so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Build up the church, be instructed and encouraged. That's why we gather, okay? And the problems that Paul is seeing with tongues and prophecy and the way worship is done in the gathered community in Corinth um, is that those things, those, the way they are doing things is actually distracting from the building up of the church and from the instruction and encouragement of the people. So I want you to keep that purpose in mind as we proceed. And then what we're going to do is use the central verse of that passage, which is verse 33, to help us understand the rest of what Paul is saying in the passage. So verse 33 is the verse, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of God's people. So we're going to take that 
First statement in two parts, God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. And then we're going to also remember that Paul informs us by the second part, as in all the congregations of God's people, that it applies to us as well. So that's Paul's indication that this is not, I'm not just, this is not just a specific situation. <laughs> it is a specific situation, but what I'm saying here applies to every congregation. Okay, so it's not a specific word. He's giving a universal principle of gathered worship for us here. So God is not a God of disorder. I think what we see um, in 1 Corinthians is a church in which order has jumped gleefully out the window to go play at the spray park, where some of us might wish we could be at this moment. Paul is very unhappy with what he's hearing. In the passage that Chris unpacked for you last week, Paul concludes by saying that correctly ordered prophecy um, will cause unbelievers and inquirers to fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you which is interesting phrasing because the Corinthians think they are already displaying that very fact. We learn um, in verse 12 of chapter 14 that the Corinthians are eager for the gifts of the Spirit. And here they are, poured out in abundance, so much that everyone needs to talk at once. <laughs> right? That's a huge outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But there's a problem because no one can understand a thing. Their gatherings have become completely unintelligible. Everybody is talking and nobody is listening. Which also means that nobody is weighing the word of God and nobody is responding. So Paul gives a series of very specific instruction. He imposes order on the way they do things. In verses 27 to 28, we hear that two or at most three people should speak in tongues, but only if there's an interpreter. Otherwise, even if you feel moved by the Spirit to speak in tongues, be quiet. Right? That's a strange command. <laughs> the Spirit is moving you, but if there's not an interpret there, just keep it to yourself. <laughs> just, just keep it in. And then in verses 29 to 32, we hear two or three prophets should speak, and the others should listen and should weigh their words. And if someone sitting down receives a revelation, the person already speaking should what? Sit down. Shut up. <laughs> right? So if one of you has a revelation, please let me know, um, because I will need to sit down in a hurry. And then we get uh, the fantastic line, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. What does that mean? <laughs> right? We sometimes have this idea that God kind of has these nice little puppet strings. And when God moves us, he kind of flicks on that string. <laughs> and then we raise our, our, our hands in worship or um, he kind of hits the mouthpiece and then we speak. Um, we have this idea that we're kind of not involved in that process. And Paul says, no, use your discernment. God always works in cooperation with us. It's a mystery to me because sometimes I wish he would not choose to use me <laughs> because I'm flawed, right? And sometimes I wish he would just do it himself because it would be so much better. But God always chooses to work through us and have us be in cooperation with him. 
So why does Paul need to give these explicit instructions? The main thing in the gathering of the Church of Corinth has become their own speaking. Speaking the word of God has become far more important than listening to it. Speaking the word of God has become far more important than receiving it or responding to it. So they're not instructed and encouraged because they don't hear. And they're not built up because they don't receive. They're focused on what they are doing individually and not on what God is doing, really. Right? Paul reminds them, God is not a God of disorder. The God revealed to us in Scripture is a God who speaks, as we heard in our Old Testament Scripture reading this morning, and chaos is tamed, right? God speaks, and light and darkness are given boundaries. Sea and sky are separated. Water is gathered to one place, revealing land. And once that order is created, then God fills it with teeming life. But first there's order. God is a God of order. Our God is a God who tames chaos, just like Jesus tamed the waves uh, during the storm. We are made to respond to order and to thrive in order. So when God first sets up with Israel a tent of meeting in which he can meet with them, when he sets up a sacrificial system, he lays out a detailed, a very detailed set of instructions. Not only for the building of the tabernacle itself, but for everything that will happen there. It's very well ordered. Jesus didn't come to abolish the order of worship, but to fulfill it. There's a little twisting of Matthew 5, verse 17 for you. Usually we read the law there. But it's not that warped, because the delivery of the tabernacle and everything that was to be done in the tabernacle was part of the law for Israel. Law and worship were not separated uh, for the people of Israel. In fact, a large portion of the delivered law is about how Israel will gather, how they will respond to God in that place. The danger, however, so we can affirm, I think, that God is a God of order. Amen? We're okay with that? Okay. The danger is we get a certain picture in our minds of what the church in Corinth looked like, and that can look an awful lot like some people maybe who worship down the street a little ways. <laughs> right? So we've got this image of people jumping up all over the place, shouting over each other, babbling gibberish in the corner, and we maybe add to that a group of people laughing hysterically in the corner and maybe a line of people being systematically slain in the spirit and lying down on the ground. Right? <laughs> and so it can feel suddenly that, well, yeah, but our... Our worship, I mean, your worship was lovely and ordered, right? So Paul's not, it's not like you've got everyone speaking all over the place in here. So clearly Paul's not speaking to you. Clearly he's not speaking uh, to my church here. And I think the vision of chaotic worship that we get here pulls at a deep fear in us, actually, at least if you're anything like me. And I realize I'm taking a bit of a risk because I'm speaking to a community I don't know very well. So you can come up later and slap my hand and tell me you're totally off base, uh, and that's fine. I'll be okay with that, and I'd love to hear how I'm off base. 
Um, but for me, I remember the first time I experienced some of the more dramatic expressions of the Spirit. I was 24 years old, and I was doing some work in a recording studio in Ethiopia, which I know sounds really bizarre, but that's what I was doing. And I was, I was on my own, and I had never really encountered a different expression of Christian faith than the one I grew up with. And suddenly I'm on my own, I'm in Africa, and I'm seeing healings, like I'm seeing people come in in wheelchairs and walk out the door. I'm seeing, I'm experiencing prophecy in a whole new light. Um, there was a terrifying situation in which there was an exorcism of sorts, as far as I could understand it, and I didn't know what to do with that. All of it. <laughs> like the healings were great news, but I was terrified because I didn't know that God. That God felt completely unfamiliar to me and unsafe. Because what else might he do? <laughs> I think we need to affirm with C.S. Lewis that God is not tame, but he's good. <laughs> we can't dismiss these expressions of the Spirit just because we don't understand them. And so it's vitally important for us to hear in the midst of this passage Paul's affirmation in verse 39, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. He's not saying stop, stop. <laughs> He's saying in the right order, <laughs> right? There's a difference. He's giving cautions for how the gifts are used in the context of gathered worship, but he is absolutely affirming their use. Paul is very aware that humans are creatures of extremes. So we ride pendulums from side to side like we're on some big tire swing of worship trends. <laughs> And we just go back and forth, and this is the best thing, and now slide over the middle, this is the best thing. And Paul is trying to caution them not to swing right off to the other side. And we need to hear that. So Paul says to them, God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. When I first read that, I wanted to go, wait a minute, didn't you mean to say God is not a God of disorder, but a God of order? <laughs> isn't that, that's what would make the most sense, isn't it? If God is not a God of disorder, clearly he must be a God of disorder, we've, or of order. Wait a minute, get those right. Um, we've just affirmed that, so where is Paul going with this? Because we love order. <laughs> order is the best, right? It's so safe, you know exactly what's going to happen. The Corinthians were seriously smug about their spiritual iterations. Clearly, they were specially anointed. And Paul speaks to them with glorious sarcasm. Or did the word of God originate with you? <laughs> or are you the only people it has reached? Right? Brilliant sarcasm directed at us as well. We tend to look inward and go, this is the right expression here. <laughs> and we need to be careful about that. And our church is nice and ordered. So as I said, in some ways, we can like, look at that and go, okay, we're doing all right. We're okay. 
those crazy charismatics over there, that's who Paul's talking to. We're fine. Um, we sing exactly the same number of songs every Sunday, and we stand and sit on command, and we sit politely and listen to the sermon, and nobody jumps up to tell me they've had a revelation, which I appreciate. Um, we've got it down, right? We know what we're doing here. And we're right. Like, order can be good and is necessary. And I teach good, ordered worship in my classroom. <laughs> so hear me when I say that order can absolutely be spirit-filled and life-filled and transformative. But maybe it's not meant to be an either-or, because Paul is always very careful with his words. We know this about him. So when he says God is not a God of disorder, but of peace— we need to pay attention to that word. He's using the Greek word erine, the Greek word most frequently used in the Septuagint for, to translate shalom, the Hebrew idea of shalom. Um, and I would argue that in this passage, it's shalom that Paul is speaking of. It's not simply a lack of dissension or disruption or violence. It's not a sort of calmness. Shalom is an active concept. It includes the idea of thriving, of health, of completeness and abundance. You could describe it as a lively and full wholeness. So picture God ordering creation and then filling it, right? It's that abundant, teeming life that is in harmony with itself. That is what Paul is speaking of here. It's the very shalom, the life of God himself in our worship. That is what Paul is calling for. I think sometimes in our current context, we become so concerned with the order of our services that we don't even give God space to speak. We leave life behind. We build up our structures sometimes, and we engineer our words, and we rigidly determine the style in which we will worship, and who is worthy to speak and when, and we professionalize, and we put up fences around our worship to the extent that I wonder, what are we really afraid of? Are we actually reflecting the God of Shalom in our worship, or are we trying to contain him? I sometimes think our real fear is that God might show up. <laughs> he might say something. <laughs> he might break into our order in a way that disrupts us in some way. Sometimes we're so concerned with our structure and our control that we fence out the voice of God. And again, without hearing the word of God, we can't receive it. Without giving space for God to speak, we can't respond to him. We can't move in the ways that he's calling us to. So the main thing for us sometimes can become order itself, right? So for the Corinthians, the main thing might have been the speaking, <laughs> hearing their own voice. And for us, sometimes it becomes the order itself, our order, our control, but the purpose of gathered worship, remember, to build up the church and to have everyone instructed and encouraged. And if we don't leave room for God to speak, how is that going to happen? 
So we are called to have people come to our gatherings, be built up, be instructed, be encouraged, to leave our church services filled with shalom, with full and vibrant life that brings the Spirit into every context that our congregations enter after they go out these doors. Like, that is a huge calling for the church. And that's what worship is. It's not contained in this neat little structure that we give it. And I ask of my own congregation, as I do of yours, is this happening? I hope so. I've seen glimpses of it today, and so I think I can say that it is. But we need to keep that alive. It needs, it's a flame that needs to be fed in order to remain constant. In our desire to get it right, to corner the market on spiritual renewal, or maybe on intellectual faith, or maybe on the best programs, or maybe on well-crafted services, or on seeker-sensitive this, or emerging church that, or missional and the other thing, these are not bad things in and of themselves. They can be wonderful and vibrant expressions of God's shalom, but only if they're not our focus. Only if we keep them behind the main thing. Because what Paul is really talking about here is our tendency to replace Christ with our own version of what should be, even to worship our worship. No, says Paul. Just no. (laughs) Your focus should not be your own voice, but the living word of God. Your focus should not be your own sense of order, but the living shalom of God. It is Christ who builds up his church. It is Christ who, in the gathered worship of the church, through the power of the Spirit, works to encourage and instruct the gathered people of God. It's Christ that does that. So we need to hear him, and we need to respond. And that's why in the very next section of the text, I don't want to steal Chris's sermon from next week, but in the very next section, Paul reiterates the focus of worship. He jumps straight to the gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you, hear this, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and he goes on. By this gospel, you are saved. This is the good news that transforms everything. It's the main thing that we need to keep, the main thing. And this is why even when we keep messing up, and I have made a lifetime study of the ways we mess up in this area, so I know we keep doing it. Even when we focus on our own order, even when we focus on our own voices rather than that of Christ, there is still hope. And there is still grace. Because we can 
If we're not careful, obstruct the word of God, we can make it unintelligible, but it's God who is speaking, and it's the Spirit who is the safeguard and the carrier of those words to us. I'm going to pray for us now, and I think it's really fitting that you're having a time of healing um, directly after this. I wasn't aware of that before I came. Um, But I would encourage you, um, as I pray and as we shift into that time, to be thinking about what maybe there's been something that's crept in as the main thing for you. It's so easy. (laughs) I talk in my classes about cultural liturgies and the way the world tries to shape us, and sometimes that seeps in even to the way we do things in our congregations, and it seeps in even to the way we do things in our lives. So maybe there's something else that the Spirit wants to reveal to you um, that has become the main thing, or has become more of a focus than it should be in your life. So I'll encourage you to think about that, and I'd like to pray for us now. Thank you, Father, for the word of your Son and the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you teach us to hear and receive again your word with humility, open to the workings of the Spirit, which we might not always understand and which might push us outside of our comfort zones. God, we don't want to be afraid to have you move among us. We want to be eager to be transformed by your presence, eager for you to work in this place. And I'm grateful for the work that I've seen this morning, um, even in the brief time that we've had together, for the time that we took to listen for your voice. And I pray a protection around that, that you would continue to keep that desire fresh in this congregation. And would you take our focus off our own voices when we, need, when we start letting that get in the way? Would you tame the distracting chaos we so often create? But at the same time, would you shake up our order and bring your peace, your shalom, God, I pray your blessing on this congregation as they take that shalom from this place into their workplaces and their schools, into their homes, and into the conversations they have with neighbors. Would you continue to let this be a place where your people are built up, where they are grown and instructed in what it means to follow you? We pray a blessing on them now and ask that you would help all of us to understand what it means to say without reservation that you reign and that our lives are oriented fully toward you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.